0: Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning so grateful for your power and your kindness, a power and kindness that you show us in so many ways. Lord, we thank you for the power and kindness you show to us in creation and giving us life and breath and giving us a world full of good things to enjoy. We thank you for the power and kindness you have shown in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and to live and die for us. And we thank you that because of your power and because of your character, we can trust you that you will fulfill all of your promises. We thank you that you have promised that one day Jesus will return and all things will be made new. And As we wait for that day, we bring our prayers to you, confident that you hear us. And Lord, we are so thankful this morning for planting this church, Hope Presbyterian Church. We thank you for the encouragement this church has been to so many in our area. We thank you for sustaining this church through this long season of the pandemic, and we pray that many would come to know you here and grow in their faith here. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this church and and their place in this community. Lord, we also thank you and, and pray for Pastor Will and his family as they enjoy some time away together, and we pray that you would give them rest and enjoyment and that they would return refreshed. Lord, we also thank you for this Father's Day, and we thank you for the many fathers that love and honor you and care for their children well. Lord, we know this can also be a hard day for many. And so we pray for those who grieve as they miss their fathers or or miss their children. We pray for those who have difficult relationships with their fathers and for those fathers who have difficult relationships with their children. Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort today. And Lord, we do lift up our brother RJ. We thank you for him. We thank you for the testimony that we've received even this morning of his hope in you. And we pray for him and for healing and for continued hope in you. And Lord, while this is Father's Day, it is also Sunday, and it is the day that you have set aside for us to worship you and to receive from you, and we pray that you would help us now to receive your good and powerful word, and that the Holy Spirit will work powerfully and deeply among us to build your church today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, as was said earlier, my name is Jeff Rendell. I serve as associate pastor at Meadowcroft Presbyterian Church, which is uh, up in the Westchester area, so not far from here. I grew up uh, right around here. Grew up actually going to Concord Liberty Presbyterian Church, which is very close to here, uh, but it's great uh, to be here this morning with you all. i um, joined this morning by my wife, Catherine, uh, sitting over there, and two of my children. Um, I won't introduce them. They might not want to. Do you want me to say your names? Yeah, okay. Susanna and Brian are here with, with us this morning, and our two older children are worshiping at, at Meadowcroft, but they send their greetings along uh, as well. So I am very glad to uh, have this time to be in Psalm 104 with you. Psalm 104, uh, it, uh, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, the, the words are in, are in the bulletin, um, but Psalm 104 is a very long psalm, so what I thought I would do is kind of introduce the psalm, and then I'll, I'll break it down piece by piece. I'm going to break it into three pieces, so I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'll take it kind of one piece uh, at a time. I want to pray one more time uh, as we get into uh, the word and then we'll we'll dive in here together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. As we sang earlier, we thank you that you are a speaking God and we are so glad uh, that we have this word this morning uh, to to receive from you. And we pray uh, that you will continue to build your church uh, during this time together. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, for the most part, I've never been a huge fan of reality television. Maybe some of you are. Uh, I will admit that I watched a little bit of MTV's Real World uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, I watched one or two episodes of that show Survivor when it came out about 20 years ago. Uh, my family, at times during the pandemic, enjoyed the show Amazing Race. I'm not sure if some of you have watched that before. But there's one reality show that, that really struck me as different uh, as I watched it. And it was a show, and it is a show, that centers around childhood toys, Early last year, a new show called Lego Masters came on the air. Has anyone watched this show, Lego Masters? Yes. Okay, at least one of you has. Excellent. Um, you probably guess what it's about. The idea is that teams of two work together to, to build things out of those little plastic bricks that litter the floor or have littered the floor of so many of our homes. Uh, now, at times, it felt like the whole uh, show was a giant ad for, for Legos, but the more I watched the show, the more intrigued I became. And I became more intrigued for a few reasons but mostly the staggering beauty and creativity of the things that were being built on the show. And as the show went on and and the cream kind of rose to the top, the creations got better and better. You wouldn't believe what these people could build with Legos. And you learn as the show progresses that three things are important in a really good Lego build. The first thing that's really important is scale. you were supposed to build something that was just large and, and physically impressive to behold. Something that that caught your eye right away when you walked in a room. Now, as you know, most LEGO bricks are very small, so it's not easy to build something large. But scale wasn't the only important factor. It was also important that there be lots of detail in these LEGO builds. And teams would be sent home if if they built something really big, but without the details that gave their builds personality and beauty. So both of these factors, scale and detail, were important, but there was a third factor that was even harder to quantify. What the judges were looking for, what truly set apart the the, the really awesome builds and the ones that led to winning the competition were the builds that told a story, the builds where where the size and the details came together in order to express something that, that someone could behold upon looking at the creation and could see more and more as they further studied and appreciated it. This required the, the, the scale of the creation and the details of the creation to really come together in a cohesive way where everything just kind of made sense. And what was even more interesting was that as we watched the show, you could begin to guess who built what without even knowing. Because throughout the show, we were getting to know not just the creation, we were getting to know those who were doing the creating. And inevitably, the creations would reflect the, the particular gifts and personality of their creators. What you saw more and more was that the creation reflected the creator. I think I've gone on long enough about this show. I'll stop. It's a good one. If you're looking for something new to watch, I can recommend it. Uh, But I do think it helps us understand our passage today, Psalm 104. Because in Psalm 104, we see a creation with scale and detail unlike any other. And we also see a creation that is cohesive and tells a story, a true story, about a powerful and kind creator. Like I said earlier, this is a long psalm, so I'm going to break it up into three sections. We're going to see how God creates, then we're going to see how God provides, and then we'll see where these realizations lead us. So we're going to begin with verses 1 to 13, which I'll read. And in these verses, we get a picture of how God creates. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. "'Stretching out the heavens like a tent. "'He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. "'He makes the clouds his chariot. "'He rides on the wings of the wind. "'He makes his messengers winds, "'his ministers of flaming fire. "'He set the earth on its foundation "'so that it should never be moved. "'You covered it with the deep as with a garment. "'The waters stood above the mountains. "'At your rebuke they fled. "'At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. "'The mountains rose, The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And so the psalmist we see here really begins with worship. He blesses the Lord and calls out the greatness of God right away. He tells us how God has clothed himself with splendor and majesty and covered with light as a garment. And I think that can be really difficult for us to picture, but the point that the psalmist is getting across here is that the way God clothes himself makes a claim about himself and makes a claim about his greatness. There's another psalm, Psalm 45, where we hear of a king's daughter whose clothing is made of gold. And in this case, we see something much greater. Of course, even these amazing clothes would be worthless if they didn't speak the truth about who God is. I remember when I was in college, I I bought a football jersey to to wear to the games and support the team. And it was fine to wear it to games, but I never wore the jersey on campus because there's always the fear that you'd run into the actual player on campus. And you feel kind of silly because you don't actually deserve to be wearing this jersey. You're not him, right? The clothes can make a certain claim. But our Lord is no imposter. His clothes match his greatness, and the psalmist shows us why. And that's why we have this really expansive language here, that God lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. The clouds are a chariot. He rides on the wind. Now, all this, I think, sounds really cool in and of itself, but the specific words that are used here are telling us something important. In the days of the Old Testament, there were many so-called gods out there, And one of the most popular so-called gods was a god named Baal. Baal was known as a god of storms and and rain. He was the one, it was said, that rode on the clouds. And so in this psalm, for God to be riding on the clouds is a way of saying that he, and not Baal, is the true God. And so much of the the language early in this psalm is meant not only to show the greatness of God, but the worthlessness of so many other so-called gods. And this is important for us because one of the reasons that, that uh, people, the people back then and even God's people, the Israelites, were drawn at times to this so-called God named Baal was that he seemed to offer a way to tame the chaos of the world. See, every year back then, people would wonder whether there would be enough rain so that they could have enough food. And if this Baal God could, could maybe help them with that by riding on the clouds and bringing the rain, then, you know, why not make a sacrifice to him so that he can tame the chaos and bring the right amount of rain at the right time? Of course, we have other ways of trying to, to tame the chaos of the world today. We all have ways of saying, okay, look, we live in a chaotic world, but if I do this and I do that, maybe it won't feel so chaotic anymore. And yes, of course, we're called to live wisely, but the reality is, I think as we've all been reminded, especially over the last year, is that we need something bigger than ourselves, to team, the chaos. That's one reason that this psalm, I think, is so relevant to us. To, to ancient people, especially the Israelites, there was no aspect of creation that seemed more chaotic and out of control than the water. If you could control the water, you could control everything. And that's part of why water is such a big deal in this psalm, and really all throughout the Bible. I mean, think about all the times in the Old Testament when water seems like a threat, but then it's brought under control for the good of God's people. And we get a reflection of that here in verses 5 to 9. It's the Lord who made the earth and gave it its permanence. It's the Lord who covered the earth with water. And it's the Lord who spoke and made the waters withdraw. And it's the Lord, it says, who set a boundary for the waters. He did this in creation, and of course he did it again later in the book of Genesis. Remember when he flooded the earth, and then he saved Noah and his family. Then he withdrew the waters again. And he did this again and again many times, like when he parted the Red Sea, so that his people could be delivered from slavery in Egypt. The Lord is able to restrain the water, and that is a great indication of his power. Some of you who are my age and older, if you're a baseball fan, you might remember a pitcher for the Phillies by the name of Mitch Williams. The guy could throw the ball really, really hard. And when he was on, he could be a really good pitcher. But there were many times when Mitch Williams would throw the ball super hard, but you never knew where it was going to end up. He had control problems. The issue was never that his arm wasn't powerful enough. The issue, issue was whether or not he was able to direct that power towards a good end. And that's an interesting thing about what this psalm tells us God does with the water. See, yes, he is powerful to create and restrain it, but there's more. And you can see in verses 10 to 13, there's an order to how the water goes. Springs gushing and then flowing, but with a purpose in mind. To do what? To give drink to the beasts of the field like the wild donkeys. And this paints a picture of a creation that that is peaceful and protected by the good work of God. We hear of of singing birds and a satisfied earth. We start to see here not just that God is powerful, but that he uses this power towards a good end to provide richly for his creation. And our next section of this psalm builds on this idea of how God is not just the creator, but he's also the provider. It builds on the idea that God's creation is not just about scale, but also about detail. I'll read verses 14 to 30. It says, "You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring food forth from the earth, bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that He planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Oh, Lord, how, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed a play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And so we see in this section that God, through his creation, provides food for the livestock and also food for people. And notice how well he provides for people here. The psalmist takes a moment to to expand on this. Rather than just saying, hey, you know, God provides food. No, there's more than that. There's bread, there's oil, there's wine. Three of the main ways that God sustained his people in the ancient Near East. And that's one of the wonderful things about God. Yes, he gives the livestock, grass to eat, and that's good. But he gives us so much more. Oil, bread, and wine. God could have given us just one food that always tastes the same. Just to give us fuel so that we can live and breathe. But God cares for us much more richly and more generously than that. And that's a reason to understand the privilege of being human and created in God's image. And it's a reason to give thanks to him. I have a friend who's married now. But back when he was dating, he took a girl out for a first date. And they were getting to know each other. And, and you know, they ordered food and eventually their salads arrived. And my buddy, being, you know, a good Christian guy on a first date, prayed for and, and gave thanks for the salads. And they kept talking and talking. And eventually the main course arrived. And my buddy, probably a little bit flustered, surprised his date by praying again. Eventually they ordered dessert. And the desserts arrived, and my friend noticed that his date was sitting there silently. And she kind of cautiously said to him, are you going to pray for the dessert, too? Now, that's probably not great advice for a first date, but I do think there's something great about not just generally seeing how God provides for us, but how he specifically provides for us and thanking God for that specificity because it reveals how God intimately and personally cares for us as human beings. And notice that with human beings, it's not just that God provides for us in a special way, but that God also invites us to partner with him in this work. Yes, it's grass for the livestock, but it's oil, wine, and bread for the humans. And those are all things that require skill and expertise to cultivate and make. And so we get to not only enjoy the way that God cares for us, we get to participate in caring for others. See, God cares about us so much and creates us with so much care and he has given each of us skills and gifts to exercise in our callings and in our churches. And as you use those skills and gifts to care for others, you are reflecting the image of God, which is exactly what he made you to do. But even though God cares for human beings in a special way, the psalmist emphasizes that he cares for all of his creation and he provides for all of it. The trees are watered, he says, which gives a home to the birds. Even the high mountains are are a great place for wild goats to live. And even the rocks, somewhere where, where you and I probably could not survive, they give a space for the rock badgers. There's an order to the way that God has made his creation. And so everywhere we look, we see that the power of God is not just like a raw power that overwhelms, but it's a power that's used in specific and particular and good ways to bring about a well-ordered creation. And part of this order is not just what God has made and where he has placed it, but the very rhythms that are built in to our creation. See, even though back then people worshiped the sun and the moon, the psalmist makes clear that that their placement in the sky is completely under the Lord's control. And as the sun goes up and down, it allows God's creation to flourish. At night, most of us break from our work so that we can go to sleep but that does not mean that God stops working. And so the lions go out to hunt because at that time it's easier for them to get closer to the prey that God has provided for them. Then the sun comes up, they go back and rest. And now it's our turn to get up and go out to work at the callings that God has provided for us. See, there's a placement and a time and an order for everything. And God designed it this way so his creation might flourish. I remember when I was thinking about this passage a while ago, I went for a walk in my neighborhood to, to pray and to, to clear my mind a little bit. And as I was walking, this was last spring, I saw these two tiny little fawns sitting in an area where there is no house. I live in a suburban development, you know, but there's one area where there's no house, and, and there's a little creek, and there's this marshy area. And I stopped to, to admire these little fawns, and one of my neighbors saw me looking at them, and he came up to me, and he told me that every year there are these little fawns that are born right in that area every year, and they play and rest in that same area. And I thought about how remarkable that was, even in Westchester, in the midst of suburbia, with lots of development, that God had preserved this little spot that is just apparently perfect for these little fawns to be safe and to grow during this early summer season. Kids, you remember going to see those fawns? Yeah, that was fun. I fully realized that in a few years, I'll probably be swerving on 202 to avoid some fully grown deer, but at that point, it was, it was super cute, and it reminded me of God's goodness. You know, as the psalmist contemplates God's creation, he too sees the goodness of God. He praises God for all of his works and, and the wisdom that he made them with to the point that the whole earth is full of God's creatures. And then the psalmist does something surprising. He even returns to the water, which we've already heard about as kind of a place where where chaos must be vanquished. But no, God's creatures are even there as well. Remember that this was written thousands of years ago, but the psalmist says that the sea is great and wide with so many creatures that they can't be counted. Written a long time ago, that's when that was said. But even today, if you go to the website of our National Ocean Service and the page that says how many species live in the ocean, the first line of this page reads almost exactly like this psalm. It says, Given the vast size of the ocean, it is impossible to know the exact number of species that live there. And the article goes on to say that it's estimated that 91% of ocean species have yet to be classified. And so as much as, as the world that we see points us to God's powerful kindness, there's so much more that we don't see. And according to the psalmist, God's power even extends to the sea, and not only to the sea, but to this mysterious creature called the Leviathan. The psalmist says that the seas were formed in part for this Leviathan to play in. Now, there's a lot of opinions on what is meant here, but but what the psalmist seems to be referring to are these ancient creation myths, where where one of the gods would would have to come and, and defeat a huge sea creature to bring about order. But here in Psalm 104, Leviathan isn't even a threat. I saw one person refer to the Leviathan here as God's rubber ducky. I love that. Because the Lord is the Lord, no one threatens him, not even Leviathan. And he's a joyful God who can even be said to form a great monster to frolic in the water. And because he's this kind of joyful, generous God, he is the God, he's the kind of God you want to look to to provide for you. You know, the Bible tells us that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We've all heard that. You know, I think that's in part because our Lord is a cheerful giver. And that's why the psalmist tells us in verse 27 that all creatures look to God to give them their food. When God gives, his creatures are filled with good things. And in verse 29, we do hear that when God hides his face and we see that, that creatures eventually do die and return to dust, But this is primarily here in this psalm to show us that even death is not outside of God's control. And right after that verse, notice, our attention is shifted back to God as the giver of life. That by the power of his spirit, he creates and renews and brings new life. Our God rules over death and life. And the emphasis in this psalm is very much on how he brings life, creating by his spirit and renewing the face of the ground. This is the kind of Lord he is. He creates with scale. He creates with detail. And his creation tells a story, a story about the creator, a creator who is worth our praise. And we see this in our final few verses, starting in verse 31. It says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. See, the psalmist praises God by by proclaiming that his glory should endure forever. And then interestingly, he says, may the Lord rejoice in his works. And so while, yes, you know, we are called to and we should rejoice in the works of God, this psalm actually calls upon God himself to do this, which he does. Our God is a joyful God who, as we have seen, has created powerfully and generously and kindly. But just because he is kind and generous does not mean that he is to be trifled with. It says here, he looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains, they smoke. See, God's kindness does not mean that, that, that he's feeble, <laughs> and doesn't care about sin, doesn't care about injustice. He does. And that's what what makes our Lord so unique and good. Powerful and kind. Powerful so we know that he can protect and provide for us. Kind so that we know he will protect and provide for us. Powerful so that we know the great peril in turning away from him. Kind so that we know the great gain and great peace in turning to him. And all this leads the psalmist to song. He will sing and meditate and rejoice in the Lord. He moves beyond simply rejoicing in the gifts of the Lord to rejoicing in the Lord himself. Because again, he knows that God's creation reveals God's character. He knows that this world with with its places and and order and seasons and rhythms is a showcase that displays the one who is behind this creation. And that's why the psalm ends with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. But here's the thing even in the midst of praising God for his wonderful creation, the psalmist is well aware that God's good creation has been disturbed. That even though so much good remains, there's also so much that is wrong. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible to Genesis 1 and 2, we see this rhythm. We see God's good creation. But then we see how it's followed with Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, God's people, despite living in a creation that that was abundant and, and ordered for human flourishing, chose to go their own way. And God's good creation was blighted by chaos. And so now we still experience this. We have this tension of living in a world that God has created good, and we still see so much of that goodness. But we also see there's so much that is wrong, disease, injustice, so many other things. In addition to our own personal struggles, whether it's anxiety, depression, chronic pain, broken relationships, sin, suffering, and death, it's all around us. And this is why the psalmist says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. See, the psalmist understands that the goodness of God's creation highlights how tragic it is when humans reject this good God. And while we suffer from the effects of this tragedy, Earlier in the service, we did something that they also did at Meadowcroft this morning. We confessed our own complicity in this tragedy. The ways that we have rejected him, even though he has shown us so much of his goodness. And this is why I think understanding creation is so important, because not only do we need the God of creation, we also need the God of re-creation. We need to know that the same God who was powerful and kind enough to establish his original creation is powerful and kind enough to bring about a new creation. And God does this through Jesus. See, when Jesus comes to earth, he is greeted by a world that is full of sin and full of injustice. He's greeted not just by, by not just human sin, but also by demonic powers bent on destroying people, bent on warring against God. But he shows that he is greater than these powers again and again. And he shows that he's greater than anything in all of creation. And we see this in many ways, but this is especially clear when Jesus deals with a thing that is referred to many times in the Old Testament as chaotic, when he deals with the water, the water that represented that that, that chaos and that fear to so many Israelites. But when Jesus is on a boat and a storm rages, what does Jesus do? He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. And the Bible tells us there was a great calm. But We have to remember that the water in the Bible often represented something even beyond water. The swirling, chaotic water often represented death. And so it was one thing for Jesus to rule over the water, but it was another thing for him to rule even over death. But Jesus, who created this world, would indeed overcome death, first by submitting to it. He willingly went to his death on a Roman cross. And as he died on that cross... Seemingly a broken and defeated human being, he seemed anything but the powerful God of the universe. But three days later, he would emerge from the tomb with a resurrected and glorified body. He emerged from the tomb in great power. But remember this about God. His works are not just powerful. They are also kind. Just as we read in the psalm that that God provides good gifts like wine, we see Jesus powerfully and kindly turning water into wine at a wedding banquet early in his ministry. And even think when Jesus stilled the sea, it wasn't for his own comfort because he was sleeping comfortably in the boat while his disciples panicked. He powerfully stilled the sea to kindly care for his friends. And it goes on and on. And then even in his resurrection, this was not just a display of God's power, but of God's kindness. The powerful and resurrected Jesus kindly greeting the women at the tomb, telling them not to be afraid. The powerful and resurrected Jesus kindly encouraging one of his disciples, Thomas, showing him his wounded hands so that he might believe. The, The powerful and resurrected Jesus kindly restoring Peter, who had betrayed him three times before he was crucified. This is how the powerful and resurrected Jesus deals with his people. And Christian, it is how he deals with you in your sin and your doubt. And your suffering. And the Bible tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits, and that one day all of creation, including those who know and love him, will be completely renewed and restored. One day he will return, and just as he rebuked the wind and the waves, he will rebuke all the evil and wickedness of this world. He will simply say no more, and that will be it. And the power of God will lead to a new creation that will be so much better than the beautiful but broken one that we live in now. And Christians, as we await that day, see the scale of God's creation. See the detail of God's creation and know that this creation tells the story of your kind and powerful creator who has created you and pursued you and will kindly care for you forever. He is the powerful and kind creator who is worthy of our worship and our trust. You know, we see how richly he provides for us when we come to his table. We come to his table not because we have earned our place here, but because he has called us and invited us. We just heard about how God provides, and now he provides a meal for us. This is a meal that helps us, I think, to look in three directions. Number one, we look back to what Jesus has done for us, as we just talked about, giving himself for us on the cross. Number two, we are sustained for the present day, by how he feeds us and provides for us through this meal. And then number three, we look forward to his return. One among many other joyful things, we will dine with him and one another in a world where all things are made new. The meal that Jesus invites us to is a meal for those who believe in him. So if you are trusting in Jesus, you have publicly proclaimed that faith, you are welcome to come forward. If that doesn't describe you, we are so glad that you are here. We invite you to, to observe and think about what you've heard today and what is happening here. You can talk to me, you can talk to just about anybody else in here if you want to learn more about what it means to trust in him. I understand the tradition here at Hope, which is a great tradition, is that we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And the words of that are found in your bulletin.